Greetings tonight, in the worthy name of Christ. Blessing to everyone that wanted to come out and hear the word on this Saturday evening. Appreciated those opening comments. I especially noted that Brother Nathan mentioned that we are to be reflectors of the light of Jesus Christ. And that's my message tonight. I believe is just another one of those reflections that God calls us to be. I'd like to turn to Luke 12 for a text for the message tonight. I'll try not to talk too fast tonight, but I don't want to keep you long. This message tonight is a message about priorities in life, and I will say on the outset here that I'm preaching to myself, and you all can just listen in. I sense a great need in my life to be able to prioritize rightly and understand God's will for our lives. We have to do with these earthly things in life, and sometimes we find it hard to know how to prioritize properly. But we have, of course, the Word of God that gives us the answers to all the problems that mankind faces. I'd like to read from Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now I've taken my title from verse 20. Then whose shall these things be? Then whose shall these things be? Well, we note here in the setting that the, uh, one of the company there, as Jesus was teaching, wanted him to divide some things. But Jesus gave the warning here to beware of covetousness and said that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. And I think that's something to remember as we go through the message. We could ask the question, what then does a man's life consist of? What are we here for? And I believe hopefully that will be revealed as we go through the message tonight. Was it wrong for this man to build bigger? It doesn't say. But we do know that what was wrong was this man's covetous spirit where he said, everything that I have gathered is for myself. And I believe that's the condemnation that we have here. God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then he goes on to say that this is how it is for everyone that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And I believe herein is the tension of of our reason for being here in this world. On one hand, we need businesses. We need to make a living. We can't be slothful in that. But on the other hand, when our heart is set on it, Then we become covetous, and then we come under the condemnation of God's word. And so we have that continual balance that we need to find. 
And I certainly am open to y'all to help me find that. If there's anything that is not balanced, uh, you'll have opportunity to correct that after the message. I, sitting up here tonight, all of a sudden this feeling went through me. Suppose I missed something. It's, and I know it, it's a, such a broad subject, we cannot be probably hit everything. But let's see what God's word has to say today. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? I believe is a question. That still resounds to us today as we consider the importance of our life here. The question was given in context of the thought that this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And we know that we hardly ever, mankind, gets a warning like that. But our life is over so suddenly and so quickly and then the question is, what's going to happen with our enterprises at that time? I believe God is through this scripture tonight reminding us that everything I call my own is only one moment away from being transferred into someone else's ownership through death. And that I, I, I was reminded of that very keenly, of course, with the death we had in our community here. But I, I, I was thinking of that and I thought of my brother. He passed away about 18 years ago. And I remember walking into his shop, he died of cancer, walking into his shop afterwards, and there sat his little S-15 truck, there sat his John Deere tractor, and I went into another room, and there were his woodworking tools, everything just left lay as he, as he worked there last, some unfinished towel bars and things, he couldn't do much in the last year of his life, and he did a little woodworking, but there it lay, just unfinished projects, you know, and that again just, just keenly reminds me that that's the way life will be for all of us someday. The unfinished projects will lie there. Everything we have will be left for someone else to finish or to possess. So as we think of the things that we possess in this world and our lifestyle, I have the, a quote here from the U.S. News that portrays the American mindset, and I'd like to contrast that with what God's mindset is for us. It says here, couples bicker more about money than practically anything else, especially when money is tight, then the battles can really heat up. Money is tied up with our deepest emotional needs for power, security, independence, control, and self-worth. But since so many of us are unaware of that emotional load, we fight about it without understanding what the battles are about. And I believe that's very true. It's like someone has said that the two most dangerous thing to address in a man's life is his pocketbook and his children. And that's probably because that the, you know, our, our emotions are so tied, like it says here, our deepest emotional needs. So this message is about that. What is God's perspective? And again, I believe as we think of separation, a message last night, there is a distinct line between the focus of God's children and the focus of the world. Our value system, I believe, is the defining difference of how the steward of God views possessions versus how the person of the world does. In Ecclesiastes 2, I've often been blessed by the uh, writer here, Solomon. We know he was the wealthiest man, the wisest man, but he came to a stunning realization one day, and he penned these words in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. 
And we know that Solomon accomplished great things. He had a, a huge uh, army and built great things in other places in, in Ecclesiastes it tells us that. But he goes on to say that this person that I will leave everything to, he says, and who knoweth, in verse 19, whether he shall be a wise man or a fool, yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun, this also is vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. You know, Solomon's saying, what's the use of having done all these things in life? Because I'm just going to leave it to someone and who knows how that person will be. And we know from scripture that the person he left it to, his son Rehoboam, was a foolish man and he squandered his father's riches. Where, where, where he actually, the, the kingdom was divided and all that. You know, and that's the reality for every one of us. And I realize we can have a will. And we can leave it to our children. And we can leave it to, you know, trust funds and things like that. And I believe we ought to have a will. But there is still a sense of that. Where we know not whether the person that comes after us will be wise or a fool. So I think in essence he's saying, why spend all this time in it? I believe it should help us to realize the utter futility of trying to build an earthly empire here. Job went on to say that I will be in death as I was in birth. And what does that mean? But that we come with nothing into the world and we'll leave the world with nothing. As you hear sometimes, I never saw a Brinks truck follow a hearse. In other words, you can't take your wealth with you. You know, when the hearse goes and your body is laid down to rest, that's it. Nothing will go with us. Then whose shall these things be? You know, all we have, God has loaned to us. And we realize that there will be an accountability. And you know, this, this fact of, of, of all this labor and all this work was, was again keenly brought to my mind this summer when we had that young man in our community that had a construction business, a pole barn business, and he had a good little business going, and he had spent a lot of time and effort building it up. Had bought some small excavating equipment. He had a t small track hoe and a dump trailer. And he did some of that. But, you know, he passed away that quick. He was gone, you know, without a moment's notice. And then, who took it on? Well, we're actually selling the equipment because there was no one to take it on. You know, and so all this, all this, like I said, all, all, this, all the stuff he had built up and all his work, there's someone taking a pole barn business on, but not, not his excavating part of it. But on the other hand, he still needed to do that to stay busy. But you know, and, and I don't think his heart was set on it as I knew him, but you know, if we set our heart on that and we spend so much time and energy in it, according to Solomon's words here, we're all going to leave it behind. And we know that's the truth. Let's turn to Proverbs 24.1 as we think of our stewardship responsibilities and the things that God has blessed us with and get God's perspective to help us focus on our priorities. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And we turn over to chapter 50, Psalm 50. In verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Haggai 2 verse 8 reads this way, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. 
So as we think of those three scriptures, we see that there is no part of our earthly existence that is not included in this. The silver, the gold, the dollars we have in our bank account and in our wallet, the cattle we own. And then Psalm 24 verse 1 is all inclusive that everything is God's, even the people that live therein. So we must reckon with the fact that we are merely stewards. We are not owners. God is the owner. That we are stewards of everything or of the things that we have. We are a steward, is a caretaker. We notice that also in the parable of the talents. Where each talent bearer, each person that was given talents was responsible to gain more talents. And he was called to an accountability before God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, we have the basis for our stewardship. Just as we looked at last night, 2 Corinthians 6, the last verses, is the basis for our separation. We learn in 1 Corinthians 6 the basis for our stewardship responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And ye are not your own. We are not owners. We are not self-sufficient, self-possessing. Yes, we have responsibility, and to some of us the Lord gives more responsibility than others. But ye are not your own tells us that we are under the lordship of someone else. I am in his employ. I work for him. And so when I realize that, as in the parable of the stewards, I will be called to give an account when my boss comes back. And we know not when that hour is. I've signed my life over. I have no rights. Let's remember that material possessions, before we look at the warnings in Scripture, there's been a lot of confusion about this issue and how to relate to money. But let's remember that material possessions, I believe, are a necessity of life. Nowhere in the scriptures do I find that the scriptures would condemn ownership. And we must also realize that not everyone that pursues a business and has a business is doing it for to be greedy of gain. The scripture does tell us in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 that we are called to provide for our own. It tells us if we don't, we're worse than an infidel. And that, for some of us, includes owning and running a business as well. So I don't want to this message tonight to put someone on a guilt trip because of the degree of their material involvement, but rather remind us that this material, if this material involvement has subtly crept into our heart, where it is our master, where we consider ourselves to be owners, and we are a slave to it, and we are driven by it, then we must be revived. We must repent of that and get God's perspective in it. We must root it out, lest it condemn us when the Lord returns to reckon with his servants. Dangers of materialism. Here's a quote from Kingdom Focused Finances by Gary Miller. He says, every culture has its idols. Our culture is willingly sacrificing time, peace of mind, children, and sometimes even health on the altar of materialism. The chase is on for one more gadget, another antique, a nicer boat, 
a larger home, or a newer car. But in this mindless chase for more, God is calling us to come out and be separate. We are called to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Again, did you hear that? God calls us to be separate. Separate in our thinking as it relates to our finances and our material involvements. Again, there is a vast and a distinct difference between the child of God, between the steward and the person that considers himself to be an owner. Remember that all this world has to offer, whether it is the best of ease, the best of entertainment, the best of fashion, the best of possessions, will all be worthless on the day of my funeral. Everything I amass and all my ease and prosperity, the day of the funeral, it's gone. It it will do me no good. And sad to say, I believe, in many of our own Anabaptist circles, we have succumbed to this problem where materialism and the lust for more becomes priority at the expense of family time, church time, at the expense of evangelism, at the expense of reaching out, of of fulfilling the purpose of why God has called us here. And so the lost go unreached. Family relationships deteriorate. Churches become embroiled in years of civil war. They can't work their problems out because they are too materialistic. Why do these things happen? I believe it's because we're engaged in a battle between the God of this world, what he wants to offer, and the God that owns all. One offers instant pleasure of indulgence, of pampering the bodily and the fleshly appetites. The other offers self-discipline and a short-term suffering of the fleshly lusts, but eternal and unending joys. One pampers feelings. The other takes faith and a firm conviction that I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I am a steward. Now let's look at some warnings from Scripture as it relates to what our material possessions can do to us. In 1 Timothy 6, there's a scripture that I've often been impressed with and I've often read it, and you know, there's so much we can learn from it. <clears throat> Someone has said that Jesus taught more about money and things related to money than any other subject. And I did a little study of that one time, and there's approximately 500 verses on faith No, I'm not sure if I did this study. I think this is quoting from someone else. And 2,350 on stewardship. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich... Or in other words, those that follow the God of this world fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. We get the idea here that it takes a fight to lay hold of eternal life because there are so many other things 
that want to take our attention away. Notice the contrast of fruit between verses 9 and 10 and verse 11. We notice those that want to be rich. They have temptations. They have snares. They have foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. In other words, they lose their way. They err from the faith and have many sorrows to deal with. But the man of God is known to flee those things. And the fruit of his life is righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Which fruit would we rather want? The answer is clear. I believe we know. So we must flee these things. Flee the love of money. Why are riches perilous and deceitful and dangerous? I think I have four or five points here. Mark 4.19. This again is just things that the word of God teaches us. And I expect that any of us that are here of any age, this can resonate in our hearts that we know the dangers are there. Mark 4.19 here in the parable of the sower. Jesus says in verse 18 that these are they which are sown among thorns. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Why are riches perilous and deceitful? It's because riches choke the word. Now we know what choking is. If you... Brother Reuben there probably knows, especially working with small engines, if you set the choke too hard, the, 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 the equipment has no power. It smokes. Or you can take a person that chokes and is choking on whatever in his throat, and slowly your breath leaves you. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not a once-and-done thing, but it's a slow drawing out, dying out. So... The love of money chokes the word of God. The deceitfulness of riches crowded out. They leave no room for the word in our hearts. And this is an issue not to be taken lightly because, again, it is a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens many times without us realizing what's going on. You know, I believe as humans we have capacities only for a certain amount of things in our hearts and in our lives. You know, it's a little bit like this glass. There's only, it only has capacity for a certain amount. And if we are filled up with the cares of this life, with the deceitfulness of riches, how much room is left for godly things? Very little. And I believe the same is true in our spiritual life. We can't have an a all-consuming interest in both. Paul likens it, the physical warfare in 2 Timothy 2.4, he says a good soldier is uninvolved or not entangled in the daily affairs of life. And I believe it's because that the battle of the soul for spiritual victory is so demanding that we cannot afford to have our spiritual sensitivity choked with material entanglements. We must be free to fight unencumbered with the deceitfulness of riches, with the cares of this world. Remember one time a number of years ago after a church had a split and some of the, a small group left. And the pastor told me afterwards, he said, I was too busy with my business to know the heart of the church. And consequently, it kind of disintegrated. There was a group that stayed. 
And I believe that especially us as leaders, not only church leaders, but fathers as well, I call us to an alertness in our lives and homes. And I believe that heavy debt loads and large business operations have crowded out the word or have crowded out the spiritual perceptiveness that can be in our hearts because we only have a certain amount and we have to be involved in large areas of business where we have very little time to commit ourselves to the work of the church or to commit ourselves to the work of our families. It will go downhill. Captivated by the world's system and money, we buy into their philosophy and justify it as good stewards. How can I know the battles my family faces when I spend too much time attending to work? How can I lead my sons and daughters in a life of self-denial if I'm pushing for the best and the biggest and there's little self-denial in my own personal life? You know, I'm concerned about that because I see these tendencies in my own life. And I know that a year or two's worth of that in the crucial time when our children need discipling, we've lost it sometimes. We've lost the golden opportunities. So I believe God's heart is that we would always think of this. Then whose shall these things be? What are you going to take with you to eternity but your children, your families? These things around us we can't take with us. I remember reading years ago in The Christian Contender, as it relates to our material involvements, that it takes a good, the, the, the quote went something like this, that it takes a good deal of spiritual vision and spiritual maturity, that if our business are doing well, instead of expanding and getting larger and larger, to say, no, I have enough, because for the sake of our families and our churches, to just stop and say, I'm making enough. This is all I need. This is all I can handle. Again, it's the difference, the separation difference between the child of God and the child of the world. The word of God or the, 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 the lusts of other things, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word is what the Bible tells us. When we are choked with the things of this world, we are no longer able to move freely for God and his kingdom. Secondly, in Matthew 6, 19, why are riches perilous and deceitful? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Money is perilous. Riches are perilous and deceitful and dangerous things because they bring unnecessary stresses in life. And certainly rusting will pursue our equipment. And as good stewards, we need to keep it washed off or inside if we can to keep it from rusting. Wash off the salt, the manure, the grime, or whatever. But I believe this is talking more about that if we got a whole host of treasures. And oh, there are treasures, you know. They mean so much to us. So we've got to bar all the windows and deadbolt all the doors and, in, and insure everything so that I can keep all my treasures intact. It brings unnecessary stresses into our life. Remember, whose are they? They are God's possessions that he has blessed us with. 
We are merely stewards of them. God is asking us, then, whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? What's going to happen with all my treasures after my death? You know, there's something about it that the more we heap up, the more we have to watch. You know, if we just live simply, simpler, then we don't have near as much to be so concerned about. Not near as much stress. And that's not always easy. If you'd come to my farm in Tennessee, you'd say, it's, what's he talking about? But, you know, we need to strive to remember that they are gods after all. Thirdly, our hearts follow our treasure. And we see that in the following verses here in verse 20 and 21. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is a sobering reality. What we spend most of our time and efforts on or in is revealing of where our treasure is. Now, if you count hours, I realize we spend more hours at work than we do reading the Word of God. But if it consumes us, then I believe that's pretty evident that our, our, our treasures are there. And here's some tests for that. Evaluate our life. What is most important? Do I resent involvement in service of the church? Do I groan when there is another medical bill or some other need to help pay for? Would I rather just do my own thing? Do I evade the needy neighbor? Which way are my efforts and resources flowing? God has blessed all of us so abundantly. Which way are they flowing? Are they flowing inward all to myself? Or are they flowing through me to the needs around us? I think it's Gary Miller calls that discretionary income. After our bills are paid, the rent, the housing, the mortgage, the grocery, the heat, and all that, then whatever's left over he calls discretionary income. And he says that where we spend our discretionary income is a great revealer of where our heart is. So where we spend what we have left over after the needs are met, reveals where our heart is. And remember, our hearts follow our treasure. So for some, that discretionary income is spent in the Lowe's tool department, perhaps, or at the Cabela's store, or maybe at the book club or the mall. Or is that discretionary income spent with Christian Aid Ministries? MZL, MIM. You know, wealth is perilous because it enables us to prioritize a wrong value system when it's all inward and it's all for more toys and more things and more gadgets for myself. Then that's pretty revealing where my heart is or if it goes and I bless others with it. Our values shift as we spend more time and effort. And that's one of the blessings as we think of this that where I choose to invest in becomes my value system and our hearts can move. You know, tonight if we see that that discretionary income has all been going this way to me, we can move and have our treasure somewhere else. And one thing I thought of recently about that, since our hearts follow our treasure, we have the ability to control where our hearts are by the choices we make and what we prioritize in life. There's basically two things that we have in life. 
And one is time, and the other is money that God gives to us. And so those are the two elements of the earthly treasures that we have. And so where we choose to invest these earthly treasures is where our heart will be. If you invest some of this treasure in sponsoring a billboard through CAM, then you'll notice the gospel signs and the billboards as you travel because that's where part of your treasure is. That's where your heart is. And you'll probably sign up for the telecounselor's call that I believe they have. They can call you on your phone whenever there's a need to pray for them. You'll sign up for their prayer request updates because your heart is there. You've put your resources there. You've put some of your treasure there. And so that's where your heart is. Or perhaps as sisters, young sisters or any one of us, we choose to help a young widow in the community or a poor family. And we go help her with her lawn or with her garden. That's our time, our treasure of time that we choose to invest in blessing someone else. And so when we go to town, we might take that long way around and see what's happening because, again, I invested part of my treasure with that person, and so I'm interested and my heart keeps going there. As we invest time and money in these kingdom interests, our treasures, we find our hearts moving closer to God. That's the way it works. You know, but the opposite is true as well. When we choose to invest in earthly treasures, that second or third farm or house or whatever, or that new 30-06 Browning or the power stroke with the Lariat package, I don't know, whatever, and we stay caught up with the latest of the world has to offer, we'll find our heart moving away from God because we've chosen to put our treasure there. So you see how that works. Jesus' own words, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's invest our treasures in kingdom work and interests so that our hearts can continually move more Godward. Because remember again, then whose shall these things be? And every one of us here tonight are on a path and that path is relentlessly moving us one step closer to eternity. Someday it'll be the last step. And then where our treasures are is where we'll be at the end of this life. Where our heart is is where we'll be. Fourth point, what's wrong with riches according to the scripture? James 5 verse 3. We'll read the first three verses. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. And I believe this scripture implies that a focus on material things and money will be a burden in old age. Greed and covetousness cannot be satisfied with more. And I'm not saying we shouldn't provide for our care when we're old. Lay, lay a little bit of, a, of a, maybe a savings account up so we're not a liability to our children. 
But if that's our focus, like it is for many people, to just through greed and covetousness, just more, 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 never be satisfied. You know, probably all of us have had our weaker moments when we look at someone else and wish we had it like them. That's covetousness according to Scripture. And did you ever stop and think about it? How much would it take to satisfy us? You know, if I could only be, have a nice house like Brother Nathan, well, I get his house, I get a house like that, and then next I'm going to want a nice truck or a vehicle like someone else, or I'm going to want $10,000. I figure if I just have $10,000 in the bank, I'd be happy. It doesn't work that way. We always want more. That's how covetousness works. If we get to the first level, we'll always covet the next. That desire for more is a consuming fire that will never be satisfied. It's always crying for more, more, more. And if that's our focus in life, we come to old age, according to this, having accumulated treasures at the expense of others with the fire of bitterness and injustice in our soul, having expected peace and serenity in old age and instead being eaten up with greed. Riches are perilous, deceitful, dangerous. They bring stress. They bring a burden in old age. So, okay, if that's the case, what shall we do with them? Shall we just dispose of them? I'd like to turn to Luke 18. And I think we already talked about what we should do with them by letting them flow into God's work and focusing on the important things in life. Luke 18, verse 22 Jesus, speaking to the rich young ruler, he said he kept all the commandments. Jesus said, yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. This scripture has been much the source of much contention and debate for Bible scholars, and I've read books written on it. Does God expect each of us to sell all that we have? Is it impossible for those with riches to enter into heaven? Verse 24 and 25 say, When Jesus saw that this rich young ruler was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Some would contend that it would be okay to be rich as long as we give. Others would say, Don't accumulate. Stay with basic necessities. The theory of non-accumulation Whatever our belief is about this passage, it seems that we all still do own some things because we just can't get away from it. We do need to own things in this life. I'd like to answer this question, Mark 10, 24. What do we do with these riches? Are they to be disposed of? Are we to just get rid of them all, as Jesus told the rich young ruler? Mark 10, 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then Psalm 62, verse 10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Notice, if riches increase. In other words, that's going to happen. If riches increase, so we are going to have money. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. 
So if we are to sell all, how do we reconcile these scriptures where it seems to accept the fact that there will be those that are rich in the church? We notice here in Mark's recording of this account to the rich young ruler that he says how hardly shall those that enter in. It's, a, it's almost impossible for those to enter heaven who trust in their riches is what he says. So my position of this non-accumulation theory is that I don't believe the Bible teaches it for basically three reasons. One of them is that most of the scriptures where we read of the call for us to give on our first day of the week offerings, all scriptures related to giving presuppose that there is a reserve there to give from. It's not necessarily saying if I don't get paid this week, I don't have anything to give because I give everything away. But all the scriptures that talk about giving presuppose a reserve. Lay up in store, I believe, is what one scripture says. Secondly, like I said earlier, it would be almost impossible to exist on a physical level with the non-accumulation theory. And thirdly, I believe that the gospel is spread to the far corners of the earth through brethren's right use of accumulation. And we have the Mount Zion literature ministry in our congregation at this point. We have had brethren that have voluntarily and freely given to that work. And I don't want to say this to make you quit giving if you've been giving, but we have money on savings right now. It's, a, it's a, a, an accountability that we sense, that the board senses. I'm not on the board, but that the board senses about every board meeting they talk about it. That there's plenty of money here, so we're always looking for ways to further God's kingdom with that money. And that could not be done if everyone would hold to the non-accumulation theory. But the gospel is spread across the world by brethren that are using their accumulated funds rightly. Through the literature work and through the, the work of the, the, our Mennonite brethren, especially in the nationwide, many of them I know of about four or five different countries where they have spread to with an outreach effort and that takes money to do that they've gone to Uruguay to Brazil to Peru to Colombia and I believe they're starting to go into England and Spain they're looking at and that takes someone's accumulation to help further the cause of the gospel I believe the important thing to note here in the scripture in Mark is when Jesus said what he did about this money thing, the disciples were shocked beyond measure. It was beyond anything they had formerly understood about wealth before. And here's my perception of that. I'll give that for some, someone better idea. But did they perhaps believe that in the kingdom of God, the rich would be esteemed and given preferential treatment like they are in this life? You know how it is. The rich people, they get, they get the good treatment. Did the disciples think that's what's going to be in heaven? Jesus said it won't be that way. And I believe they understood the significance of the eye of the needle. They understood that the rich man will be stripped of everything at death's door. And he will be equal just like the poorest man in the kingdom of heaven. That's my understanding of what this scripture is teaching. Yes, the rich man will be stripped of his riches. He'll be stripped of his prestige. He'll be stripped of everything that he accumulated in this life. And that was shocking to the disciples. They said, how then is this going to work? Why is materialism a threat? 
Again, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I believe many are those that have lost out in the faith because of it. How does it happen? Well, I believe all the things we've talked about already, plus the affluent and materialistic age that we live in, they move us closer to the world. And as this happens, as we come closer to the world and their mindset and mentality, then the lines of spiritual warfare become blurred and even move at times. Rather than a fight for souls, we contend over petty issues. And our minds and lives become clouded with our covetous lifestyles. You know, we, we accept all the toys the world offers. You know, the list just goes on. Well, how can I avoid it? Well, we must believe the scriptures. I believe we must be accountable to each other's brethren. We must guard against a consumative lifestyle, spiritual apathy. You know, those can all be signs of materialism in our lives. And I believe another scripture that is very shocking, if you want to call it that way, in Proverbs 23, verse 5, he says, Wilt thou then set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. And I believe it's simply saying to live for affluence, to live for wealth and prestige and comfort in old age is like spending the whole of our life chasing the wind. We can pad ourselves with all the comforts our wealth can provide. We can lift our head up in the community. Yet when we come to the end of life, we're going to be stripped at the eye of the needle. We're going to be stripped at death's door of all that we have ever accomplished in this life as far as material things. And the big question then is, where will I be as far as the relationships that God wants us to pursue in this life? The relationship with my fellow brethren and sisters in the church, the relationship with my family. We must answer that question, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? May God help us as we, like I said, I preach to myself these things as we look at them, evaluate them in the light of eternity. And it's like the Ecclesiastes writer says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And I believe any one of us, when we go to funerals, and especially for the young or those that die suddenly, it just again keenly brings into our mind when we see a person like that laying in the casket, helps us again realize and visualize the true priorities in life. That we're not here to stay, we're going to pass away, and then what? So may God help us in that, and I... Appreciate your prayers to help me be what we have noticed tonight from the Word. I think we'll just open it up again if anyone has anything further to share, any corrections.